Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. This is Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. Join us this May 17th through the 25th in Plata Neo, Costa Rica for a comprehensive intro to bamboo building immersion. In this week-long course, we will cover bamboo design and model making, species and varieties, harvesting, processing, treatment and curing methods, joining and lashing techniques, furniture making, tools, and so much more. All foods served as 100% organic and farm fresh. To learn more and register, visit naturalbuildingcr.com. Welcome to our last interview in this month's focus on regenerative communities. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Alan Ohashi. Alan is a newspaper journalist turned documentary filmmaker and screenwriter who works with groups and organizations to help them tell their stories and is also organizing an intentional creative community in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Now for the focus of this interview, Alan speaks from his experience as a board member of the U.S. Co-Housing Association and his time living in Silver Sage Village, a co-housing retirement community in Boulder, Colorado. In this interview, Alan defines co-housing communities and their myriad configurations across the country. We explore the benefits that co-housing can bring to your lifestyle regardless of how you live, as well as the challenges that it could present for people more accustomed to living alone or are used to being independent and disconnected from their communities. We also discuss where the co-housing movement is headed and how it's growing quickly as people, especially in the United States, aspire to become more connected and reliant on their local areas. If you're living in a co-housing community, are considering moving to one, or have left one because of the challenges involved, I would love to hear from you in the comments or directly through info at AbundantEdge.com. Now that I'm actively searching for a new home and community to invest in, co-housing is something that I'm looking into closely and would love to hear about your personal experience. So from here, I'll turn things over now to Alan. Hey, Alan, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? Oliver, I'm sure you're having a great day down there in Guatemala. Yeah, it is really beautiful this time of year. But you said that you're having some unseasonable weather in winter in Boulder, Colorado as well? Well, I don't know if it's unseasonable, but it's uh, it's part of our usual erratic weather uh, in February in Colorado. It's really uh, blue sky, 50s, the snow's melted, and uh, I'm walking around in t-shirts. That sounds pretty nice too. Well, hey, look, I've got a ton of questions to ask you about co-housing and the community structures around it. So what do you say we just jump into the questions? Let's let's uh, have at it. All right. So let's start from the beginning. Could you tell me a little bit about your own journey in co-housing and how you came to be a board member of the U.S. Co-Housing Association? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, when I first uh, became aware of co-housing, I really... Uh, was at sea. I didn't really know much about it except uh, intellectually. Uh, I happened to be on the city of Boulder planning board at the time uh, that uh, Silver Sage Village, where I happened to live, came up uh, as one of the uh, projects for approval here in the North Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I happened to also live uh, 600 feet away from 
uh, from the site. And as a result, I didn't, I wasn't able to participate in the deliberations because I was an affected uh, resident and uh, uh, couldn't uh, participate. So I had to declare a conflict of interest and lo and behold, the, the project was approved by the board and uh, several years later, uh, it popped up in the neighborhood. I was just living, like I said, 600 feet away in another part of the, the, the development. So uh, time passes, and uh, we our place was a two-story townhouse, stairs and all that stuff, and the dogs were having a hard time getting up and down the stairs. I was having a hard time getting up and down the stairs. Diana was having a hard time getting up and down the stairs, and uh, she had paid more uh, closer attention to the co-housing idea. She had gone to a couple planning meetings and that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's always, they're always five or six years out from, uh, from fruition. And so we moved into this place where that we're, we were at. But, uh, meanwhile, uh, Silver Sage is going strong and, uh, we got tired of walking down the, up and down the stairs and, she decided we needed a place that was on the ground floor, no stairs, no stoops, handicap accessible. And a guy died over here at Silver Sage, and his we bought his place, met all those criteria. So I did. I was kind of came blindly into co-housing. I didn't really know a lot about it other than intellectually. But uh, how I became a disciple is I had my uh, road to Tarsus uh, moment when I was stricken with a death-defying illness back in uh, December 2013. I was written off for dead after being in the hospital for six weeks and rehab for a couple weeks. And lo and behold, the University of Michigan found out what was wrong with me. I uh, rehabilitated, and here we are talking about housing. But meanwhile, I uh, was flat on my back. I was in a wheelchair. I had supplemental and I had a, a visit from uh, the ghost of Christmases yet to come, and I didn't like what I saw. And I was happy and, and relieved to know that I had uh, made it back. And what was the great part about it is all the neighbors, they came by, they brought food, they chipped in money to help you pray some of the transport be between the hospital and this place. And so that's really what co-housing is. It's not, it's about, it's building. But at the same time, there's a secret sauce of co-housing that really differentiates this housing configuration from all the other housing configurations. So that's my co-housing story, and I'm sticking to it. And as a result, I've been spreading the word as much as I can. Any opportunity and to anybody and any group who's willing to listen to me, I'm the, I'm the enthusiastic disciple. That's an incredible story, especially overcoming that illness and seeing how much your community came through for you when you really needed them. Is that one of the bigger benefits that you've found since moving into a co-housing situation? Uh, I would say so. Uh, basically, co-housing, there's the secret sauce really has uh, like four components to it. One component is the relationship part, and that's the part that, that you really don't understand unless you really kind of experience it. And so what happens is neighbors get together, a group of friends, a group of uh, acquaintances get together and decide that they want to be part of a community for kind of their mutual benefit. And so the whole idea is you create this uh, this co-housing culture that's based on sharing and caring. <coughs> and our place, we're kind of small, we're 16 units, but there's a, a wild sage co-housing that's across the street. And they have, I think, 32 units. And so 
the idea is, is to have a group of neighbors who have uh, have uh, their own homes, and that sort of segues into the sort of the next characteristic that has to do with balancing privacy and community. So we all own our own houses, or we all have our own residences, uh, and so we can kind of pick and choose uh, the level of community that we want to have. So like, for instance, when I just got back from the hospital, I kind of really backed off. I decided I needed more privacy and just basically take care of my personal well-being. And so uh, in part, and now I'm starting to get back just uh, recently really into, into participating in the community. So there's that balance between privacy and community. And then um, the other part is, uh, is, is everyone sort of chips in their time. And the idea is, is that uh, uh, we all share in the upkeep and maintenance of the of the area. We you know shovel the sidewalks. You know we help pick weeds in the garden in the summertime, and uh, we decide on how we're going to do that. And that's through a budget. You know we're basically set up as a homeowners association and HOA. And so we pass through the expenses and all that, and we have uh, dues based on all that. So then we participate through the self-management of the organization. And probably the uh, most important thing, the sort of the umbrella over all this is the shared values. We uh, have a mission statement and we have values and uh, how we're going to work together to make the world a better place and all that sort of stuff. So those are the four characteristics of the co-housing secret sauce. And uh, I'm, I'm glad in what basically what it is, is everybody has bought into those. And so when someone gets sick, it's not this thing about, uh, well, give me a call if you need something. In co-housing, what it is, is you need some help. What can I do for you right now? And so you need you, have, you need a jump. I have cables. You're in the hospital. I'll stop by and see you when I'm out and about. So it's this notion of intentionality that sort of separates the co-housing secret sauce, those of us who've uh, put that on our hot dogs and uh, sort of regular housing, traditional housing uh, configurations. Now, you didn't grow up in a co-housing uh, unit yourself. What have been the most significant changes in lifestyle for you since you started living closer with your community? Well, you know, for myself, uh, this was just another iteration of living with in close quarters. Because when I was a, a kid, you know, my, I'm Japanese, and so we have we have sort of this family thing going. And so, you know, my grandfather had moved in with us when I was young because he, uh, it was grand, my my grandmother, his wife couldn't take care of him uh, for a period of time when he had diabetes. And so, there was that early early instance. So, you know, I lived in the college dorms for four years. Not only did I live in the dorms, I lived in the same dorm room. Uh, for four years. And then when I got out into the real world, uh, my first housing experience when I had a job was living in a house with four guys. I bought a house with two other guys. And uh, after that, I moved to, uh, that was in Gillette, Wyoming. And then I moved to Lander, Wyoming. And first place I lived was in an apartment above the Ace Hardware store. The drugstore was downstairs. The movie was across the street. My job was a half a block away. And after that, I uh, just really bought into this mixed-use urban uh, living thing before it became fashionable. And so I've always kind of been uh, uh, living in this in this uh, sort of environment and people on top of, of top of me and next door to me and in my business. 
And so live, moving into co-housing um, for me was an easy transition. Um, but, you know, there are some people who move into co-housing, you know, they lived in a cul-de-sac on acreage and, you know, they're used to making decisions of, of, on what color they're going to paint their house or if they're going to chop down this tree or if they're going to, uh, you know, bother to, uh, to mow, the, mow the yard this week or not. And so it's this whole idea of having to shed those issues of control and seed them to this notion of cooperation and you when at one time you could uh, chop down the tree if you wanted now you got to ask 20 people if you can chop down a tree when they paint your house purple you could do that now you have to ask 20 people if you can paint your house purple so i would say that uh, for me there really wasn't much of a transition uh in terms of living in in uh, co-housing but even to digress farther uh you know i I grew, i'm a baby boomer and so we lived in a in a neighborhood that everybody knew each other uh the parents knew each other because kids came running through everyone's houses we had neighborhood schools uh all the garage doors were open and so co-housing really tries to reinvent old style neighborhoods but one community at a time and so I think that's that's the sort of the, the long vision of what co-housing is trying to do, sort of this alternative to bowling alone or, uh, you know, loneliness. Now, there's a lot of different types of configurations for co-housing. You yourself are living in a co-housing uh, community that was intended for retirees, but can you explain some of the other configurations that you've seen within the network and the differences in the way that they're structured. Right. Um, yeah, so we're, we, we live in Silver Sage Village, and everyone here is uh, over 50. And there's also a multi-generational co-housing, which is multi-generational. Uh, we have people of all ages. And so there are communities that... Um, <coughs> There are communities that form around uh, interests, for instance. Um, I guess seniors, being a senior citizen would be an interest. But, you know, I live in Colorado, and uh, we have beer and breweries and microbreweries around here. And so I've sort of categorized co-housing types. There's like – I think there's like three types of them over the, over the years. I think they've sort of differentiated themselves into three groups. And one would be like co-housing stout, and that would be like Silver Sage Village where – uh, you have a few, few burning souls, a few really uh, a few big strong advocates, and they partner up with an architect or some sort of real estate professional, and um, go through the brain damage of doing a, a, a development. And it's very time consuming. It takes you know sometimes five to seven years. Some people are still working on them after uh, over lengthy periods of time, and it's very capital intensive. Uh, because you have to buy the land, you have to hire the professionals, you have to go through the permitting, you have, and then there's the construction cost for your housing. For, and so basically the people who are bought into the community, uh, in partnership with a, with a design professional or, and, and a developer, they have to bear all the costs of co-housing for co-housing stout. And that's would be more, would be tr traditional. And there's only like 166 of those, maybe 200 in all of North America. So it's not like it's, you know, uh, the fashion of the housing type of the day. And then there's another type that's sort of uh, in between those two. It's called, I call it co-housing light. And um, 
there, what that is, is there's, you would have a developer. I would, I'll use the example of a, a, a community in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, Bloomington co-housing is driven by uh, the developer and Lauren Woods. And he had, you know, his business is building houses and selling them. And so he has uh, got, bought a piece of land, an acre, and is now hired an architect and building uh, a co-housing community. And so he's really engaged in co-housing and really wants to get the co-housing thing to go. And so on the side, he's been forming a, a community of people from Bloomington or other places who want to live in this community. And so what happens there is it's architect-driven, it's developer-driven, and the Burning Souls are still uh, active in recruiting members to the, uh, to the community but uh, at the same time, the development is less time-consuming because that's all being taken care of by other professionals. Less, less capital-intensive, of course, because all you would be responsible for is buying your house, and then that would be included, and that would include in not only the cost of your house, but the cost of, you know, the rest of the development. So that's uh, co-housing light. There's another one, and it seems like in Canada, there's uh, more places like in Vancouver that are using this uh, this configuration. And the one I've been really advocating because obviously you can't build them fast enough and they're really expensive to do. And so for it to really hit a tipping point, I think uh, co-housing ultralight is uh, the, the one configuration that basically takes the secret sauce and kind of pours it over other types of housing configurations. And there's a pretty good example in uh, Genesee. It's called Genesee Gardens. It's in Lansing, Michigan. And what they did was they bought a group of houses within a neighbor, existing urban neighborhood and uh, renovated them. They donated some of their, com- their front yards to be common space for the whole uh, community. Bought another house that they're redoing to make into a common house. And so they can add and subtract because people are coming and going. There are other houses in the neighborhood. They could invite other people in who would want to buy other houses. So that's an example of what would be uh, co-housing ultralight. There's a group in Traverse City, Michigan, also uh, forming a community before they move into or they're working with a developer to uh, convert a, a mental health facility, old mental health facility into condos. And so that's another aspect where uh, another example of, of using this retrofit approach, but spending more time developing the community. So those are the th- so three general types of, uh, of uh, co-housing configurations that, uh, that you know, general, at, general categories. And what type of people does co-housing tend to attract? Is it a lot of uh, families and people generally searching for more community, or is it broader than that? Well, there's a couple answers to that. Um, the typical co-houser that would live in a co-housing stout or a co-housing line, uh, more of the traditional co-housing, the demographics are these. Uh, uh, that tend to have a higher perceived social class. They have high incomes, obviously, because of having to bear the cost of development, uh, high education levels, uh, Caucasian, and 60% of the time, a woman. And so, for whatever reason, uh, women are attracted to a stereotype of, of co-housing. I guess that would be the stereotype of uh, who would be in a, a typical co-houser. Um, but, uh, on the other hand, like for co-housing ultralight, where you're moving into, uh, 
into other kinds of repurposed buildings and repurposed projects. They also, those people also tend to be a little bit liberal or progressive. Uh, they're social class. Uh, there are people, more people who identify as being middle class, more people who earn moderate incomes, although still having high uh, education levels, and more single people and single parents. And um, the reason that uh, co-housing ultralight communities are more diverse is because they tend to locate in lower cost uh, areas in urban areas. And so you have these, this, this sort of this continuum between co-housing, traditional co-housing and retrofit co-housing. And then there's a whole bunch of people in between. Uh, there are people who really closely identify with, with co-housing, but then there are a lot of people who like co-housing, but they're trying to figure out how, how they can get into a community that's more accessible to them. And so that's why, uh, co-housing you know, ultralight should be appealing to uh, kind of uh, most of the people who are interested in co-housing. What are some of the main things that you see people getting a lot of value out of when they make the switch to a co-housing lifestyle from one that perhaps was more separated or removed from their community? I would say that uh, it's, you know, kind of what we were just talking about uh, earlier, Uh, you know, co-housing, like for instance, our co-housing association, you know, you don't have like the cul-de-sac subdivision housing association where people who live in the sub in the suburbs get together and talk about uh, how to build their houses or how to create a community within their, their within their uh, neighborhoods. You just don't see that. Co-housing is the only only group that has intentionally has conferences, intentionally has uh, meetings and um and web chats talking about how we build community community and what are some of the pitfalls of of being in a in a community because basically what happens is is that co-housing is sort of contrary to the american way you know the american way is is rugged individualism and i can take care of myself and it's i can do this on my own and i don't need anybody else and so trying to fit the the square co-housing peg, which is kind of just the opposite of that. We want to work together. We want to care for each other. We're reliant on others for our assistance and, and trying to pound that square peg into the American dream round hole. And that in there and that creates conflict. And so I think there are a lot of people who intellectually understand co-housing. But as you know, like in my personal example, I didn't really get the the essence or the gist of co-housing until I actually needed to uh, participate in the community at a really high level. Does that answer partially your question? Yeah, no, definitely. Now, I know that a lot of co-housing arrangements kind of form around environmental values. What has been your experience with uh, the priorities of these co-housing configurations and how they treat the local environment and ecology around them? Well, you know, um, I think it's a good uh, it's a good model, and so certainly everybody at Silver Sage has one car. Uh, we all recycle. We uh, you know we try to we we do the best we can to you know be be uh, friendly to our environment. We just spend a whole bunch of money and we put in solar panels on our on our building, and so we generate electricity to operate our common building and. Uh, uh, you know, earn a little bit of profit to put back in the bank. And so I'd say that uh, we, I don't know if we do it any more than 
than a lot of people. Of course, in Boulder, we kind of live in this weird little bubble here. And so uh, I go to other places and oh, you don't have, you don't re- recycle or there's place to separate out the bottles and cans from the paper. And so I'm surprised when I go to places and they don't actually, you know, do the basic run-of-the-mill of recycling, for example. And so um, I think that uh, we're, we're no different than, than anybody else, really. Uh, in fact, you might run into other communities that have more, the more of the, some of the eco-villages that uh, raise their own food and maybe even raise food for the greater community. Uh, but uh, I think we, you know, on a micro level, we uh, do we do pretty well. We have uh, some some uh, gardens here, and of course, you know, we go outside and pick a sprig of lettuce instead of having to run to the store to get one. But you know, certainly you can't uh, grow rice checks, and you certainly can't, uh, you know, grow uh, raise a chicken, or you certainly can't. I, I suppose we could, but uh, you know, you still have to go to the store, and you still have to. You know, we don't have we don't have a cow we can milk and get uh, you know sure, make fresh you're not dairy fully or anything like that. But you're still <laughs> making some conscious efforts towards environmentalism. Well, I think, but I th- but but in, I think we do. But I think in in Boulder, for example, you know that's just kind of part of the part of the thing. And uh, if but I'd say that uh, because of the ilk of people who end up in co-housing, as I mentioned, the the demographics. Um, I'd say we you know, probably do it a little bit more intentionally than a lot of places. Let's switch gears for a second here and talk about some of the challenges of living in such close proximity when a lot of, especially Americans, are not really used to, to that way of life. Um, ha- have you had much experience with conflict coming up in your, own ex- uh, in your own situation? And what are some of the ways that the Co-Housing Association helps established uh, places get past the conflicts that could derail the the cooperation? Well, you know, I would say that uh, uh, I would say all co-housing communities have have uh, those issues that you just raised. But, you know, kind of the, the one of the mantras is the best thing about co-housing is the neighbors. And the worst thing about co-housing is the neighbors. And so basically you get to know people on a level that you wouldn't normally get to know people. People who, you know, you don't get, you know, people who are just basically your neighbors. And so because we operate on consensus, on a consensus basis, which is basically everyone sort of agrees to at least to go along with an idea, um, there, there, there still is a sort of indoctrination and socialization that everybody has about voting and win by one. And the, I'm, as opposed to, I'm willing to give in on that. Or I'm willing to go with that, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. And so, really, co-housing—the biggest—I think the biggest challenge of co-housing is having to, you know, you come on campus here and you're in a co-housing community that's based on the shared values, that's based on consensus decision making, and then you step out, of, go outside, leave campus, and then if you want to do voting, if you want to do, you know, uh, continue to apply yourself to the top. Uh, and go do that outside of the community, and so it's this whole notion of being able to walk in both world, walk in two different worlds, really. And I think that a lot of I, I would say that my experience is is people have a difficult time doing that. At least my experience. And uh, like I said, for myself, 
that's I didn't. It's always been an that's been an easy transition to me for me to come to co-housing because I just you know I've always just lived and um, individual individual would be secondary to the community. But I would I'll tell you that that's not a pervasive view. I'm not a, a, a typical co-houser in that vein on the sort of extreme of community first. In fact, I have lots of war stories, but I don't want to, uh, you know, incriminate uh, <laughs> or, no, no, or, or talk badly or poorly of my neighbor of my neighbors because we just had a had a situation like that last night at a community meeting, and so uh, where there was a zero sum game uh, proposal and uh, having to and having the minority group having to persuade the others to you know be less demanding. And so that I would say that, you know, one of the there's a a whole industry, uh, the co-housing industrial complex that includes, um, you know, these sort of soft skills and in fact, I do a lot of the soft skill teaching, not a lot, but some soft skill teaching on consensus building and how to meeting facilitation and uh, cultural competency and diversity. I do a lot of work around that for other communities. I teach and do workshops at the co-housing conferences on those topics because people really have to unlearn and, re- and unli- unwind those tapes of, of you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of socialization into this other system that's sort of totally antithetical to co-housing. Yeah, I can imagine that's quite the uphill battle. Um, and for a lot of people, um, a very difficult transition if they're not used to living like that. Now, what are some of the most common reasons that these intentional communities fall apart or break up? And afterwards, let's talk about how you can sort of mitigate or plan ahead to prevent those things. I've never heard of a co-housing community falling apart. Once a, once they make a, once everyone in the community makes a commitment to move forward, I mean, it's you know, it's this big stepping off the edge uh, type of uh, risk that people take. And so here you are hanging around with 15 or 20 people who you know on a very limited basis. And then you find out when you get together with them that uh, they're this big control freak or they're uh, totally passive and uh, you can't get them to participate or whatever. And so I think it's real. I would say that the biggest pitfall is is for communities, or is communities that don't get to know their people ahead of time well enough, because really what it is, it's like running a family business, but everybody lives on site, and it's even the it's even your family members you really don't like, and you still have to keep moving moving the ship forward. And so it's a matter of uh, I would say that the that one that one thing the communities could do to is to uh, get to know their potential neighbors on a level more than just a superficial level. So when I say superficial level, I, it's it's like um, oh I like to go oh I like to go to the movies and oh I like to read oh I like to go hiking. Well, the point is everybody likes to go to the movies. Everybody likes to read. Everybody likes to go hiking, but what are, but, but what are the, what makes you tick? Are you, uh, you know, do you have a, have you taken the Myers-Briggs test and, uh, are you a, a I or are you a E 
are you a J or an S? And so it's a matter of, of sight of getting people to know each other on a different level because you're really trying to, it's more like a team, like a, and, and trying to figure out, uh, who the players are in your group and what are their best jobs that they, what are they most, uh, I guess, uh, talented at for whatever jobs that are necessary to part, make the community tick. Because it's not like, oh, let's, uh, we, let's trade Alan in for, uh, we need somebody who's better at, uh, at, uh, at uh, tilling the garden. Can't do that. You have to use whoever your existing team is to make things happen. And if, and if, and if, uh, and, and getting people to kind of toe the line and understand how to work together in a, in a, in kind of a teamwork fashion. And I would say that, um, that's one of the other challenges of, uh, of living in a community. I love some of those insights. And the whole time you were explaining that, I was just thinking this is probably really good advice for building any kind of intimate relationship. A lot of those things oh, yeah. apply even just on a one-on-one basis. Yeah. In fact, I, I do a training, uh, a cultural competency training that includes, there's, I found this uh, online Myers-Briggs test that you can take on your cell phone. And when you're with people who you really don't know very well, like, uh, like at a conference or whatever, people are willing to, to break that ice and take the test and talk a little bit about the, oh, I'm an E, that fits me just fine. I'm an I, that fits me just fine. But before, but, and I think at the beginning of a community formation, that's the time to really get to know people like that. Because once you get down the road and once people start screwing up, then it's kind of hard to backpedal that. And, and it's better to be proactive and get to know who your people are ahead of time. So that, uh, you know, you can, you can set your norms and expectations for your community saying that, okay, we're not going to put up with this. We're not going to put up with this. And, uh, we know that you're, uh, that you're a control person. And so we want, really want you to watch that. And so when you, it's, you just have to be really more open about, uh, those types of issues because it ends up being a big, huge business we're running here. We, what, what do we got? We 16 units. So we're talking about a, you know, a, $10 million business that we're trying to keep afloat, uh, with the value of the houses and, you know, what it costs to upkeep this, this place. So it's not like you just bought your house and in a cul-de-sac and you drive in the garage and you go inside and we never see you again until you have to, you know, go buy a carton of milk. Around here, it's in co-housing. It's, it's a little bit than that. What tend to be the ideals and the intentions that really hold the community together even when issues come up i think what it i think what it is is uh just this idea of we're trying we're in this together and uh i might not like you i might not like your decision or your idea but that doesn't mean i don't like you and so i think it's this it's this it's this notion of being able to not take, take things personally because anything that ha- happens around here around decisions is all pretty much business decisions. And so, you know, you get people who, you know, tend to, uh, together, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you have friends who that you like at work and you have friends who you're, who you like in your neighborhood and you have people who you like to go to the ball game with or whatever. And it's the same thing here. You know, we have, uh, people who are with others that, uh, and not necessarily friends with everybody. So it's not like we're trying to be everyone's best friend when we're here. And I think it's that whole idea of, of trust that I mean, of, of don't take this personally. And so 
there are some things I suppose are, are personal, but at the same time, the things that I think that we get into conflict in community, that people get into conflict into in community about are things having to do with more of the business aspects of the community. You know, I, you know, there's lots of ways to go from point A to point B, and uh, we argue over which is the best way to get there. And so uh, I think the, the idea is, is that we're just trying to get from point A to point B, and it shouldn't really matter how we get there. If you want, we'll go your way this time. And so it's a matter of, of um, again, kind of shedding the control or being okay with letting other people uh, having to sit, make it, participating in the decisions and uh, sharing the decision-making uh, approach, which is the basis of consensus, and also sharing leadership. I say that that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, in high school, you know, there's always those kids that uh, are in all, every page of, on every page of the yearbook, you know, band, one, two, three, four, football, one, two, three, four, you know. Uh, future farmers of America one two three four and uh, it, the, the idea is to really try to get people to share those roles because it's easy to just let uh, the guy who wants to be involved with everything or the woman who wants to be involved with everything do it all. But uh, what happens when they decide they're going to back off? What happens when they decide to move? What happens if they when they die? If there's been no shared leadership and there's been no uh, uh, I guess uh, nurturing of of, uh, of succession. So you know, it's just like it's just like it's like in any kind of business atmosphere, uh, really. Uh, my neighbors and others don't like to say, say that we run a business here, but ultimately it is. That's an interesting observation, and it makes me think: What advice would you have for people who are considering getting into co-housing? Uh, how should they prepare themselves, and what are some resources that they could look into to learn more? Um, well, these days, because they're, co-housing is starting to be a little bit more, uh, I guess, recognizable or mainstream. You know, we show up on the, on the New York Times, and we show up on NPR, and we show up on public broadcasting, PBS. And so it's uh, not necessarily a, an anomaly that it once was. And so I think it's easy enough to uh, go and kick the tires. Uh, we, For instance, at our place, we have uh, four places that are for sale all of a sudden. And so we have people coming in and sort of test driving the place and looking around and coming to our community dinners and attending the community meetings and uh, just, you know, kind of hanging out and co-housing. And most places, most co-housing communities have a guest room. And so when you're out traveling around, you can say, hey, I'd like to come stay in your guest room, maybe check out your community and kind of see what this co-housing is about. So there's a way to kind of best drive co-housing. And, I, and I, I think that's something that's relatively new compared to maybe, you know, eight or 10 years ago. So there's that way to find out about co-housing. And the, 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 I say that, I'd say that the uh, broadest form of information uh, comes from the co-housing association of the United States. And so as I mentioned, there's you know a lot, there's no other housing configuration who has uh, an association where we actually network around and create space for people to talk about their experiences. And you know the co-housing association isn't your typical nonprofit. You know we're not stomping out cancer and we're not uh, you know finding docs there, you know forever home and we're not saving whales or any of that kind of stuff. But we do make our, make the world into a better place because we work directly with people of all ilks. We help people 
build communities. You know, they're great places for kids to grow up healthy and strong. They're edges against loneliness. You know, there are data that show that loneliness is more dangerous and deadly than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so co-housing also provides safe places for everybody to age in place. And so the association really is the place to go if you're interested in finding information about co-housing. And uh, we have these web chat things that happen uh, a couple times a month. Where it's free. You dial into Zoom, and you can hear an expert talk about co-housing. In fact, I did one last night that was about uh, retrofit co-housing. That's kind of my my uh, the drum that I've been beating lately. And so we have a conference that's coming up in Portland, Oregon, on the uh, 29th of May, 30th of May through June 2nd. And people are will are uh, encouraged to check that out and come out to Portland. It's a nice place to go look, uh, just as a tourist, and come and find out about co-housing. And so our website is uh, cohousing.org. So it's pretty easy to find. And uh, there's a section on there about the the conference, and there's all kinds of information about uh, co-housing. There's a directory of all the co-housing communities around the country, and um, blogs and information and all kinds of stuff about uh, anything you wanted to know about co-housing and uh, were afraid to ask. Wonderful, Alan. Those are all really great resources that'll get people started. Now, before I let you go, can I ask you one more question? What do you think is the sort of the biggest potential, the brightest future for co-housing moving forward into the modern context? I think think co-housing, I'm convinced that co-housing is uh, a, a, a straw. Uh, I think co-housing is a way to bridge the cultural divides that are uh, a bit so prevalent in our country today, because it intentionally brings people together of of all ilks uh, to talk about uh, in a safe space some of the things that divide us, some of the the issues in the country that uh, are divisive, uh, and and it's a group of people who are willing to take action to help. Uh, bridge those cultural divides. And so it's a matter of, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Co-housing has not hit that tipping point yet, I don't think. And I'm confident that uh, with podcasts such as you're offering here and the conferences that uh, we offer through co-housing and the communities that are uh, co-housing U.S. and the communities that are in formation and the ones that are existing, and the ones that are just uh, ideas in people's heads. I think those are the those are the uh, uh, the things that are going to really push uh, co-housing into the mainstream and make the world a better place, one community at a time. I love it. Awesome. Alan, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us and explain more about what you do and what you promote. Co-housing has really caught my interest in the last couple of months, especially in the larger context of what it can do for the health of communities and the environment around them. Uh, So yeah, I really encourage you listeners out there to check out the resources that Alan mentioned above. And I will also add these links to the, the show notes for this podcast episode as well when this goes live. So, Alan, again, thank you for your time. I hope we can stay in touch, and I'll definitely reach out to you again at a later date. And also, Guatemala would be a good place to try co-housing because it's already kind of tribal. There are cultures already in place that are already more familial, and uh, it would it just fit in would fit in really well. I did I make documentary movies on the on uh, for what I really do, and 
I made uh, three of them about co-housing, and one of them I was in South Africa and did one about uh, tribalism and traditions and culture. And places like Guatemala uh, would be a great place for a natural fit for co-housing. I'm actually really glad you brought that up. I wasn't going to say anything, especially not on the podcast, but it's definitely an option that I'm considering with uh, some friends and developers of mine here, uh, looking into the possibility of developing a co-housing community around a permaculture ecosystem as well. So yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I think there's a ton of potential here. And when I kind of form that idea a little bit more, perhaps I'll put this out to the larger community from the listeners on the podcast. Yeah, so do you have a, or is it going to be for expats or is it going to be for local people? I mean, we're still really early in the exploration and, and business modeling stages. So um, definitely as the idea starts to form and become a little more concrete, I'll reach out to you again and see if you have any advice on the structure that we might be able to follow. Oh, yeah, I, I would definitely be interested in working with you on that. Very cool. All right, well, Alan, let's keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks, Oliver. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.